Hey, this is Thinking and Drinking. I'm your host, Bart Almond. Over the last 30 years or so, I've worked for major record companies, working with major artists such as Alabama, the Dixie Chicks, and Florida Georgia Line. I've also been writing songs for the past 15 years, have over 50 cuts, two number ones, and made a lot of friends along the way. I'm going to be talking to some of those friends about songs, life on the road, and just life in general. I hope you have as much fun as I will. Jason Chef. You can't even count how many times you've heard his voice on the radio or on your stereo. What kind of man would I be? Heart of mine and a ton of others. He was a lead singer of the iconic band Chicago for three decades. Also doing background singing for Cher and Neil Diamond and a who's who of others. Now he has a new band, The Rise Above. With Jay DeMarcus of Rascal Flats and Dean Castronovo from Journey, their set list is two hours of hits. It's crazy. I just recently got to know this guy, and he seems like a long-lost brother. Sit back and get to know Jason Chef. All right, thinking and drinking, Jason Chef. Good afternoon. Hello. Dude, how are you? I'm doing well. Man, thank uh, you so much for doing this, man. Of course. What a treat. I've, as we were speaking earlier, I highly recommend if someone's going to do a podcast, if they can have the chance to actually collaborate with the person before, it's great because <laughs> I've known you a long time now. <laughs> we did the uh, we did the COVID co-write. We did. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy, you know. Man, I was awesome. laughing. I was laughing so hard about that. It's just, it's just, and again, just another amazing blessing. It's like, sometimes yep. I just look around and go, man, I, I should be thankful. My life is pretty right. neat. <laughs> this is pretty amazing. Right. That's a- but you are a SoCal boy born in San Diego. And uh, obviously your father, Jerry played bass for, as you say, both Elvises, <laughs> Presley and Costello, and the Doors and all this stuff. I mean, how much, and this is, I know this is a question you've been asked a million times, and it's, how much did you rubbed off on you? Did you want to, you know, like every little boy, you want to be like dad, so you wanted to pick up the bass, or did the bass just find you? It's so interesting and cool. Um how things happen because as I was telling you earlier, I never really had a game plan. (laughs) I was just doing what was in front of me. And luckily most of it was, it was, you know, good stuff. Some of it was bad, but, (laughs) but a lot of it was pointing me in a good direction and music. I found very early. Uh, Both my parents are musical. My mother has a beautiful singing voice, very buttery. You know, nice. so I think that's like that, as Champlin would say, man, you know, when your voice prints like it does, you know, with all those frequencies, you know, yeah. that but my mother has a really, like you do, nice wide signal, at, uh, you know. <laughs> I am nice and wide. <laughs> well, <laughs> I understand. So um, my parents were the classic couple of kids that got in trouble. And they did the right thing. And I've thanked both of them and will again right now. It's the most amazing thing that they did the right thing, which gave me the opportunity to be here to speak to you. Yeah, man. 
and to them and the experiences we've shared throughout our lifetime. Uh, my father's mother passed away a few years, well, probably, maybe, it seems like a few years, but three or f- maybe six, seven years ago. And he wanted me there, which was incredible. I was up in Sacramento. And I got a chance to thank him because, you know, com- what I was also, I'll go back to the, uh, the kids that got in trouble. They gave it the good old college try for about three years. And my brother Darren was born. 10 months after me do the math and uh and and so they split up and so it was a broken home you know i didn't mm. really spend a lot of time with him growing up and uh and frankly not a lot of time throughout our lifetime because he's been a touring musician and he's yeah. in europe now and all that stuff so i understand that even even being in a in a marriage that has survived I haven't been around a lot, you know, so it's yeah. like I totally understand. And, and the the feelings of guilt that we all have of what we what we missed, you know, when I was up there with his yeah. mother and we were saying goodbye to her and, and I could just feel this incredible energy of a family that that was that was together that didn't have a lot of togetherness mm. growing up. But it was important that 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 uh, that we were all there and. I thanked them. I was able to thank them. And I said, I, I believe this, that if I could change anything, if I could have been the kid that went to elementary school that wasn't questioning why did they not get together or, or stay together, this and that, um, and, and, it may, and I could make sense of it. If I could change any one of those little things, I told this to him and my, my grandmother. If I could change one of those things, it would have made something a little better back then. Like, you know, as a kid in school, everything changes. Mm. Yeah. And I, I, I said, I take a look around. I go, I'll take it. Yeah. I, I don't, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. You can't have, it, it is what it is. What brought you here? And this is too good, Bart. This is way too good. So mm. I, so that's how, how we started. And my mother really, uh, and my grandmother raised us all four boys. <laughs> How fun is that? And they were incredible. And, you know, um, so I wasn't around my father to actually hear him playing and, and, uh, and, and have that influence. Okay. He, he, and I was not an Elvis Presley fan as a, as a teenager, right? right. It was like right. way too early for that. It was, kind of like well all right um but he uh when i started playing professionally and i was in i remembered one night i was playing probably about 16 years old and i was playing a song and i played a played a fill at the end of a figure that was way mature not something some kid who wants to just pop and slap and try and sound like Jocko in 1978, 79 would do this very mature line. I went, that's my father coming through me. Wow. Kind of like what we've been talking about with the spirit, right? It's like, he didn't, I didn't sit there watching that. I didn't sit, he didn't sit there going, Hey, try and do this. It came through me. That's, that's my father's influence Hmm. is, is really genetically. And he is, his note value and and just phenomenal bass player. Man, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. So, was was bass your first instrument, or did you play 
piano or drums or what? I mean, good question. In fact, um, I took to the piano probably six years old, something like that. Wow. And it, was, it was natural that I could pick songs out. So this, my best friend's mother was a piano teacher and told my mother, you should have him take lessons because, you know, there's mm. something going on here. And so, um, so I started taking lessons and I got through the first book of the John Thompson kindergarten piano book, which was so easy. I could sight read that. No problem. <laughs> By the time the first grade book came up, she saw that I wasn't, I wasn't learning how to read. I was, it was just just by ear and, and goofing off. Yeah, yeah. So so I started with piano, but used to play a lot of Elton John, which I still love, still do. And and then my brother Darren got a set of drums, uh, so those were around. I got my first guitar when I was probably eleven or twelve. So we formed our first band, and in that first band, everybody else took all the other the other roles. And so I said, well, I'll play bass because it was the only one left. And I only had a guitar. So I learned where a lot of guys I've, I've, I've heard about learning just playing on the top four strings. Right. Right. But again, I felt it was the weirdest thing, Bart, because when I was playing, even though I was playing like in the wrong register, you know, octave on a guitar, I could feel they were bass parts. I knew I was playing bass. Yeah. So by the time I got my first one at 14, it was really natural. I had a gig almost immediately with my mother's band, actually. I joined her band. She took me to Twin Falls, Idaho on the road uh, in November, and it changed my life because I knew exactly what I was going to be doing. It was like that's when it yeah. was, you know. So, so your that's first how- pro gig was in your mom's band. You were 14. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I joined the, union, of- joined the union when I was 14. Man. San Diego local and um and yeah it was that's all she wrote yeah so you by saying you didn't have a plan your plan was kind of handed to you when you were 14 yeah it just made sense because it was fun yeah. it made me feel good it made other people feel good i was making some money and it just this was all good pure stuff you know um were you singing? No. My mother hammered on me to sing. And I, first of all, obviously I'm a tenor like you. But we're all tenors when we're 14 years old and 13, right? Maybe still. Um, and I, I didn't like the sound of my voice. Again, going to the bass, it just felt so natural. And this is another lesson that I love to give up-and-comers and kids and stuff don't always just lean on what's easy mm-hmm. because, you know, as we were talking earlier, I could have played a top 40 gig till the day I died and really didn't feel like I had to work at it that much. Yeah. Some things yeah. happen where I thought I want to go a little further. I want to, I want to, and part of it, the weird part, it was just kind of moving to LA because I'd gone as far as I could in San Diego. I was, my aspirations were no higher than, I may still just play top 40, but I just want to be around my heroes. So I can see them in seven 11 and yeah. gawk at them. Right. But just getting into those, into those environments, things start, you got to put yourself yeah. in the right place. Right. So she hammered on me to sing and I always wanted to sound, I knew I could sing high notes, but 
I wanted to sound like a guy, right? And so all of a sudden, when my voice started changing, I wanted to sound like Jeffrey Osborne was hot at the time. I wanted to sound right. like that and deep, and, but that wasn't me. So she tricked me for my, uh, what was it? I, I was 19 or something. Or I think somewhere around there, my mother tricked me, and she bought me a vocal lesson. And she bought, and it was expensive, so I had to take it. I couldn't blow it off. It wasn't like, oh, this is $10 lesson. She got me a lesson with the best teacher in the world at the time, and I still consider him, Seth Riggs. Oh, I've the heard of him. Seth Riggs. Yeah. At the time, he was teaching Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Barbara Streisand. He's the guy. He, did, he invented speech-level singing, SLS. And I walked in and I thought, this guy's going to go, he's going to hear me and go, oh, that's cute. Here's another stage mother throwing their kid at me. And it'd be one and done. Right. And this dude asked me, what do you want to do? I said, I want to increase my range. He goes, well, you're coming to the right place because that's what everybody wants to do. I said, but I want to increase it down. He probably never heard that. He probably never heard that before. Yeah. I said, I said, I know I can sing some high notes, but I just, I won't. I want to start sounding like a dude, man. And so he takes me through some exercises and he goes, Jason, you're barking up the wrong tree. You're a tenor. You're a natural tenor. We just need to build that and also strengthen your bridge, right? Which is the break. Everybody's like on the break. So um, he goes, and by the way, the tenor is a gold mine. Listen to the radio, which again, that's the that's the furthest thing that yeah. I think is possible. Like I'm going to be on the radio, but I guess it's industry speak, and this guy's dealing with a lot of people that sure. want to get there. And I'm going, okay. Um, he goes, you know, because Journey Chicago, right? And I even have all my recordings of my of my lessons, and I'll never forget him saying, "See, what you're doing is you're developing." a sound and a style that you never know where any of this is going to take you. You may end up being a romantic. He said mm. that to me. And at the time I'm thinking, that's exactly what happened, right? And you're in Chicago singing love songs. So it was incredible. We, I, he took me through some exercises and in that first lesson, man, he showed the potential because he had a little trick of when you're go, you're getting to that bridge of how to get up there without straining, and it was basically bending forward. Right? So feeling that connection, it was like, whoa. And he said, and so I left there thinking not only, not only am I coming back, but how much? And I started like at one point two days a week. And it's he was exactly right. He goes, you came here just in time because in 30 years you're going to have a voice and it's been, or no, in 20 years you'll have a voice since I went to him in 1983. We far surpassed it just because of technique. So my mother tricking me was the most incredible thing because as she always said, if you put that next to playing bass, then the, the uh, competition, yeah. Narrows greatly. So, so he said you'll have a voice in that you will be singing correctly, yeah. and you won't sound like Oscar the Grouch. You'll be, you'll still have your voice, or or just not be able to sing at all anymore. Yeah. 
He says, you know, because a lot of people, if you don't, you don't do that, then uh, they're they're gone. Well, it's so interesting because it's like you kind of want to go, are you a bass player that sings or are you a singer that plays bass? But you are are fully one hundred percent both of those things. And and you're right, man. There's there's not not many of those cats around. Well, the funny thing is, I just wanted to be a bass player. I wanted to follow in the footsteps of my father. And since it felt so natural, I thought, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be easy. But I got to LA and yeah, I was starting to work. I was starting to do some records, but the truth is I, to this day, I'm a very aggressive player. Mm -hmm. I play too hard at times. Like Larry Graham and Verdine White are my heroes. Hard hitting. Yeah. Right. So, so recording, especially like ballads, and stuff you know that really require a light touch so that the note things i learned how to do that you know i yeah. learned eventually but when i got to la i didn't light the town up which was it was that was bumming me out because i thought i was going to mm-hmm. and you know i wanted to be like a first call session guy yeah and then the craziest thing happened when all of a sudden i started taking vocal lessons and started getting sessions and then i joined chicago Bill Champlin would bring me into suddenly I was a first call background vocalist, man. We would do Kenny Rogers, Commodores, Gino Vanelli, Cher, you know. And, that, and the crazy thing was, is that was as easy as the bass was. Yeah. Because as you and I've been working, this, this is what I love doing. I love recording vocals. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's my wheelhouse. Whereas back then, I said, man, why isn't this happening? And, and you look back on it, and it's like nothing against being a first call session bass player, but as all my buddies have said, you took the right route you know, yeah. because you're an artist also. And uh, so it all, again, there was never any plan, ever, never any game plan of I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Just what's in front of you? Who's showing their belief in you? That was a big, big one. Mm, because yeah. Coming from a broken family, I was really on my own in a lot of uh, ways. But there were a few mentors along the way that really showed this belief in me, and um, and it, it it matters. Well, how how long were you? I don't want to say struggling, but how long were you in LA, really trying to get your foot in the door before the Chicago thing actually happened? It's funny because it seems like it was a long time. So I got here in, uh, I'm in LA right now. I spend my time half the time in Nashville and LA, but most of the time has been out in LA since the pandemic. But yeah. once the world opens up, you're going to see me face to face, buddy. More than you, more than you want. Um, <laughs> but I, I got here in 80. And um, again, I could, I had a top 40 gig as long as I, wanted to show up and do it my drug habit as we've talked a little bit about started 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 finally getting in the way you know i mean i'll just throw it right out there but i was a wake and bake everyday weed guy and could function i was becoming successful while doing that my mother always told me don't get high no one ever gets anywhere when they get high and i'm sitting there thinking what's your reference point you've never even done it right and I'm like, you know, rising the ranks and, you know, <laughs> stupid kid stuff. Like, she's right, man. You know, or at least put a lid on it, you know, no pun intended. But, you know, because I was 
going down the tubes with it. It wasn't like just a recreational, you know, thing. And, but the cocaine is really what brought me to my knees. So that was really ramping up when I got into town here. And, um, and so I still was able to pay the bills, but, uh, and it's funny, Seth, at one point I started, you know, talking about this, it's really actually getting clear again of when it started going South and the drugs were starting to make, you know, cause they were expensive. And, um, I remember one, two different times. It only happened once in, in, in both of these environments, but one time I missed a session because mm-hmm. I'd been up all night. Um, not good. Yeah. The second one is I, I was, I showed up at my top 40 gig and, and was so high. I couldn't even get out of the car and I was in the parking lot for the entire first set. They come out. <laughs> to find me i know it's ridiculous mm. but that got my attention though that that made me leave la to i went to hawaii took a gig with this top 40 band matt sorum who ended up playing for guns and roses with the drummer yeah. i got great i got the best blackmail material of me and him <laughs> only playing but over in hawaii and uh, so that was my dry out period to kind of start thinking about my life. And mm. I still didn't stop everything, but I remembered sitting on the beach and missing you was, was a huge hit at, you know, John Wayne. John Wayne, yeah. And, uh, and what's love got to do with it right then at that point I was on the beach just kind of going, I gotta, I gotta try and make a push to go further than just top 40 when I get back to LA. And so I came back to LA and so it was 84, right? And I said, um, okay, well, let me start getting a little more serious about writing songs. So I called my friend Dennis McCoskey, and we were sitting around writing some stuff. And he got a call from Ronnie Vance, great publisher, um, who said, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm sitting here writing with Jason Chef, and Ronnie heard about me. So he goes, put him on the phone. So I get on the phone, and Ronnie says, what are you doing? I said, oh, you know, we're just writing. And I said, I got my first couple cuts. Carly Simon cut a song of mine, and and, uh, David Lassley, this great background vocalist, was James Taylor forever. Oh, wow. And he goes, come on in here. Let's let's, let's have a meeting. So I go to his office, and he looks at me, and and I tell him, and he goes, so where's the publishing on this? And I said, well, Bobby's manager is going to take care of it. And he goes, Jason, quit giving your songs away. Right. He goes, cause what I can do is I can, I can, if you have something in the pipeline, I can take it to Kathleen, Kathleen Carey, who was running the company. Fantastic, phenomenal publisher mm-hmm. and woman. And he said, I can take, I can take, you know, your stuff in there. So I left there thinking, okay, uh, I'm not going to give my songs away and maybe I can develop this relationship to get, to get to go to the next step. And he said to me as he left, he goes, why do you want a publishing deal? And I said, I want a publishing deal so I can go in and record anytime I want. Cause before, right then in 84 ish, no gear was out yet. Right. If you wanted to record, you had to go into a studio and most likely have a publishing deal, right. To, to be able to pay for that. And so my buddies that I, that I was uh, working with that had those, that's where I was getting the experience, all the recordings, so that I want to be able to go and if I want to play all the instruments myself, I want to be able to to do that without depending on anybody. He goes, 
tell you what, I'm going to give you a couple of days at MCA Whitney. Um, no strings attached. I won't even take the publishing. You want to go in? I didn't realize he was testing me. Right. And so I leave. I go, okay. So I told a couple of friends, hey, I got a couple of days at this MCA Whitney studio. And I'm, it's so funny what we, the minute we allow things to influence us. One of my buddies said, oh, yeah, that's that old rundown gospel studio in Glendale. So I'm thinking it's just probably some really right. junky place. <laughs> yeah. And so I borrowed a DX7 and the, the original sequential circuits drum machine, which was not cool. It wasn't a Lin right. you know, drum or anything. <laughs> and, and I programmed, dude, that, dude, that. And I smoked a big joint and I started trying to write something. I was yeah. just, and I'm, I'm a ballad guy. So I'm starting to write these things and I'm going, this sucks, man. So I just, and I go, but it doesn't matter, you know? So I blow it off and I walk in to the studio the next day and it's Neve Studer. Yeah. It's not like the, the place isn't plush, but it's real gear, man. Yeah. An, a, an 80 series Neve console and a Studer machine. And that got my attention. And I don't remember the guys. Hi, I'm your engineer. I'm going, oh boy. Right. I, go, I better I better do something. I better come up with something. I said, what do I have? What do I have? <laughs> I said, Heart of Mine, a song I'd, I'd started a couple years earlier. I was house-sitting for Tony Bronigle, who was playing drums for Bonnie Raitt. And he said, want to house-sit for me? I go, yeah. I just met Bobby. All he knew me was as a bass player. And so, you know, nice enough, respectful. But I sat down at that piano and I go, I got to write something that'll get his attention. What would Bobby sing? So I started the verse changes and melody. Doom, do, doom, do, bum, 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 da, do, 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 Started Heart of Mine. I went over to his, he was staying at the Holiday Inn in Burbank. Nice. Had come back from, from uh, Miami to rekindle his career in the early 80s. He was writing with everybody. And we were sitting there watching TV, and and uh, and I was again super stoned. And I go, Bobby, I've, I, I've got this idea, and I, I don't know if you you want to hear it. You know, you probably don't. You know, right. uh, I don't want to bother you. And that's what I love about our our breed, Bart, is that the muse always wins, doesn't it? I was yeah. expecting this guy to go, Jason. We're watching TV. Turn the right. TV off, and he goes, Let's hear it. So I barely squeaked out on this little DX7 going through a Fender Champ amp, not a plush audio environment. <laughs> I squeaked out this verse in this chorus, and he flipped out, says, what is that? And pushes me off and launches right into the key change of the chorus of Heart of Mind, lyrics and everything. And right then, we knew we had a racehorse. Yeah. We, we were so excited, and that changed my relationship with him. Suddenly, I was a writer. We couldn't tie those two sections together forever. And then all of a sudden, Dennis McCoskey came out with those magic changes to glue that thing in. So, Ronnie, I have these two days at MCA Whitney. And he goes, uh, so I go in there. I said, I got to cut hard of mine. So I put this funky little version down. And I'll send you the demo if you want to hear it. The original it. Demo. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty funny. And... Uh, I went in to have a meeting, meet Kathleen and Ronnie. And I walk in and Ronnie says, uh, 
so did you get anything with this kind of, I know you didn't vibe. Right. Yeah. And I looked at him, I go, yeah. And he goes, really? Do you like it? And I said, yeah, I, yeah. I like it. Give me, give me, give it, give it to me. Give it to me. He throws the cassette in and I watched Kathleen close her eyes and take music in more deeply than I'd ever seen anybody listening to music. Yeah. And by the end of that demo, she opens her eyes and looks at Ronnie and says, we've got to sign him immediately. And I went, what? and Ronnie goes, well, wait a minute. Don't you want to go on your vacation? Like you, she said, no, 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 no. Get a lawyer, Jason. We're signing him immediately. Right. And man, so your whole story of like when, when your first hit came, it's so interesting how, how parallel it was mm. is that that song got me that publishing deal. And the reason I also wanted a publishing deal was somebody to talk about me. I saw what was happening with my friend, yeah. Aaron Zygman, who I grew up in San Diego with and Elmo Irving is where we started doing all that oh, stuff yeah. with Bobby and all those guys and how they were, they were talking about him. They're talking about me too. And as I said, I, I want that. I want somebody to be talking about me. Well, sure enough, three months later, man, let's see, two, September, yeah, like two or three months later, Warner Brothers, Michael Austin calls the publisher and says, do you have any songs for Peter Cetera's solo album and or someone to write with him? He had just left Chicago. And they said, yeah, we got this new kid who's, you know, so let, let me send you his stuff. They send my three songs in my catalog. Heart of Mine's one of them. And they get a call back the next day from his assistant saying, who's singing these demos? Mm-hmm. They said, Jason, the writer is. And they go, okay, thanks. Hang the phone up. She calls me and says, something's going on. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but I can feel it. I've been in this business a long time and something's going on. Be ready. And I go, ready for what? Right. And she goes, Anything. I don't know, yeah. but I'm telling you something's happening right now. And a week later, man, that tape had circulated. What happened is Michael heard it, called Lenny Warrenker upstairs and said, you got to come yeah. downstairs because they were going to start Satara's record, obviously, but they, they had him as first writer ref- refusal. So they had both Chicago and Satara. And they said, I think this could be the guy we're looking for to replace him in Chicago. They were talking to Mickey Thomas, okay. and they had spoken to, um, what's his name, uh, uh, Richard Page, who passed on it. Wow. And a week later, man, it was like Howard Kaufman, Irving Azoff, mm-hmm. uh, Warner Brothers, everybody, the band, David Foster, who I'd met as Jerry's son, right? As, <laughs> oh, you're Jerry's, one of Jerry's kids. Because they knew my father, right? I had no idea. This was so. I get this phone call. It had passed around everybody's hands. Champlin and I knew each other. I was just a bass player. I'm not going to sing next to this guy and the bands. You know, we were playing in right kind of little club bands. And I get this phone call saying they think you're the new guy. I mean, come on. So, the long-winded answer to your question is: I got to LA in 1980-ish. I started taking my vocal lessons in 1983. In 83, so that was the beginning of really kind of getting a bit more focused and serious about it. Mm-hmm. Two years later. It's crazy. I mean, 
Oh, I need to tell you one last quick thing, too, is that Tom Keene, who co-wrote Will You Still Love Me? Uh-huh. When I was a kid in San Diego and I saw these two kids on TV, the Keene brothers, they were child prodigies. Right. And they were like, at that time, I was the big fish in the small pond. I mean, I, right. you know. I grew up in a surf community, so they were just playing surf music. But I was starting to get into Weather Report and, and Earth, Wind, and Fire. And so I was, like, you know, feeling pretty good about myself. Everybody's telling me. Right. And I saw these two kids on television, and they were, like, two and three years younger than me. And they were seasoned veterans, man, the most phenomenal talent. And I said to my, my mother, I said, if I could meet those kids someday, I know we'd make some great music. Again, like, just the biggest fantasy phrase well sure enough i moved to la they're they're two of the first people i meet so i'm in their band we cut a record out at sound city okay their second one uh as as, you know they've broken away from their little teeny bop thing and so tom was really tight with david foster tom keen so i met foster through tom and i'm just jerry chef's son you know it's like he heard me playing okay Tom Keene would call me and say, hey, man, I want to go down to Davlin Foster's producing the tubes. And I go, okay. So I walk into Davlin Recorders, and there's David Foster with the guitar player of the tubes cutting guitars on Wild Women of Wongo. Oh, yeah, on man. That tubes album. Love and, that and I'm just a fly on the wall. Tom calls me shortly after that, says, hey, man, I want to go to da- down to Davlin Foster's producing Chicago. I go, sure. So, again, I walk down there. Sexual healing was 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 number yeah. one at the time. And I'll never forget Foster walking through the door saying, Marvin's back and in a big way. So we walk into the studio and I'm just nobody. I'm nobody, man. I remember Robert Lamb walking in in his sweatsuit and he had no idea. I was invisible to these yeah. guys, right? And they were in cutting drums for Hard to Say I'm Sorry. And I'm sitting there going like, this sounds incredible. But still, they, they hadn't come back, right? So it's yeah. like, this is my journey with Tom. And the next thing I know, um, and I just started, rec- you know, vocal lessons. So it's like the idea that you're going to be in this band someday is yeah. so far removed. All of a sudden, eight, nine months later, I'm coming over the the, the, uh, the um, Laurel Canyon Hill just going over to the valley side. And all of a sudden, that intro to Hard to Say I'm Sorry came on, and as we all did, the seas parted and I'm going, I can't believe I was sitting in there as they were doing this. This is a revolution in pop music. And then two and a half years later, I'd be the guy singing those tunes. So what were you 23, 24 when you got 23, 23. Did you have, I mean, I know you jokingly or not jokingly say you didn't make plans, but did you have any idea? I mean, once you got there, once you're on the road, you're in the band, you're playing in front of 15,000 people that that would last 30 years. Of course not. I don't even think they did. Nobody (laughs) thinks I remember my publisher. When I got that gig, she says, this is incredible. You're going to get a good five years out of this. And that's what, when I look back on it now, the thing that's just so amazing, you know, because I I think you and I've talked about this, but Jay DeMarcus and I and Dean Castronovo have formed a band called The Rise Above, which basically our set list is mind-blowing. It's nothing but hits of Journey, Chicago, and Rascal Flats. And it's insane, you know, and the band is on fire. 
that to be a part of those legacies, man, that's the thing that's just crazy right now is that we were there really building that thing. I like, you know, like I said, I always thought, and a lot of the time I was in it, especially at the beginning when we were making hits, I'm going, I'm just, I'm just, I I mean, I knew what I was contributing was was the right stuff, obviously, but there was a part of me that's going, I'm just the guy who kind of came in like, you know, and Peter's really the guy, but when you slice it up over, over uh, the eighties, it's pretty much split equally of, of who contributed hits and, and, you know, those hits of the eighties. And so, I'm very proud of it, man. It's uh oh, dude, w- way unexpected. Were you were you uh, obviously playing bass and singing? Were you writing all the time? Were you getting as many cuts as you wanted? Were you writing for? Were you getting cuts outside of the band, or were you just laser focused because you guys were gone 250 days a year? You had nothing else to do but Chicago. Yeah, well, to 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 really develop into the front man yeah which truth be told there's no way i was ready for that Mm. at the beginning although i list i look back and listen back on on uh recordings and see videos that obviously there was enough there yeah you know to make it work or i would have been gone i would they would have fired me but 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 I was not a guy like a Richard Page or a Mickey Thomas that would come in and just, you know, in the studio, obviously, Chicago yeah. 18, it is what it is. That, and that was really pretty easy, to tell you the yeah. truth. I'd heard what an ogre David Foster was. But, man, we got on famously because we because that's, that's my wheelhouse. That's where I've always been, right. you know, felt comfortable. But getting out on the road and to... To, to really try and put everything into becoming that and, and getting into shape the first time, you know, um, I didn't, I was not the type of writer that was sitting around going, I'm going to write a lot of songs. I would write when there was a, a project. And so I basically became the principal songwriter of the band because these guys had written all these amazing hits and they were, they were hitting 40 years old when I joined the band. It's so funny. And they were taking vacations when we weren't touring. And then if we had a, Record come up, sure, maybe, you know, some of some of them weren't even really writing anymore. Yeah. But I had I had lots of cuts on all the records that I, you know, that I uh, was a part of from 18 through yeah. 36. And um and so so yeah, I not not much outside of it, but you know, it was definitely um <laughs> definitely pretty amazing. It was fun, man. I tell you. So how did how how did you get started and coming to Nashville? Obviously, you were still in Chicago when you started coming to Nashville. Did you come because Dennis was here, McCoskey? No, I showed up at a at a gig at the Puyallup State Fair. Okay, you played that one. Yeah, it's like just outside of Seattle. Yep, State Fair, Puyallup, Washington. And there's a couple of things that are significant about this. So you're starting to learn. You already knew this from my texting that I can't tell a short story, <laughs> but I'll try. Um, the the Puyallup Washington State Fair. There's a, a there's a lady who runs the thing. I can't remember her name. She's awesome. You show up and she's just this incredible energy, and she's backstage and she's making sure everything's covered. So we played it a year, and. Um, 
and it was awesome. And then we played it. We played there September 12th, 2001. That state fair. (laughs) And so walking backstage and seeing her face as all of our faces being in such shock of what had happened to the world trade center the day before. Mm. And we were one of those bands that decided to stay out there rather than come home. And that was, that was a moment that when we were out Mm. there performing, when I sang feeling stronger every day that night, that was the first time I was never delusional saying, this is my material. Now it's Peter Cetera's stuff, right? Sure. Sure. I'll honor it. I'm going to, you know, keep a seat warm, but I'm not delusional. This is mine now. And it's funny because some of the original guys in the band, they didn't have kids until later. That would one, one comment came to me that one of their kids was in a supermarket. And they'd heard the original version of just you and me and said, that sounds weird hearing him sing Jason's song. I said, no, no, that's not, that's backwards. Right? So, so, but, but seeing what it did, yeah, what it man. delivered as we're talking of all this stuff of what is the purpose, seeing that medicine that was administered, man, that night of mm. feeling stronger. I saw the people and the hope, man, in their hearts hearing this. And a lot of that was a lot changed, you know, and, a lot changed for everybody. But we finished that night. And then people the needed year, that. Absolutely. As they're going to coming out yep. of this. Absolutely. You and I and what we're doing is they say, oh, we don't cure cancer. Well, actually, we kind of do. Yeah. You know, yeah. in a sense, right? Cure it's emotional don't cancer. Take, don't take yourself, you know, too seriously, but you can help ease. Absolutely, man. Out there. Yeah. So, so the next year I came back and it had this kind of feel of, of uh, like a, you like seeing a war uh, veteran that you'd been in the trenches with. Like it was melon. It was like a bittersweet. Good to see you, but we've been through something, man. Yeah. So we did that. Went back the second time after that, 2003 and things were a lot more chipper. And she comes up to me and says, Hey, do you know who rascal flats are? And I go, no. And she said, well, they're a country band and they played here a couple nights ago and sold the grandstand out. And uh, they're big fans of Chicago. And I go, well, that's nice. You know, I'd heard this a lot over the years. And, you know, I'm still, in, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying hearing this and respectful to it. It's just, it's uh, sure. country music too. It was like way off my radar, right? Yeah. And so I didn't grow up with it. And so she said, well, yeah, they, they were so excited you guys were going to be here a couple of days later. They mentioned you on stage and everything. I go, oh, that's nice. And she said, Jay wanted me to, to give this to you. She hands me the uh, I Melt CD or Melt. I can't mm-hmm. remember which one it is. Yeah. And um, with, a, with a yellow legal pad note wrapped around it. And I'm expecting it to say what I usually would read, Dear Chicago. Right. But all of a sudden, this writing starts, Dear Jason. And I go, whoa. Hmm. It says, my name's Jay DeMarcus, and I'm in a country band called Rascal Flats. And I just wanted to tell you that Chicago is what made me want to play music. Wow. And I followed not only the band's career, but definitely your era. Hmm. I even have the unreleased album that you did with Peter Wolf, 
Stone of Sisyphus. And I'm going, wow, this is directed to me. Yeah. And he said, I'm, you know, we're getting ready to make our third record. And uh, I don't know if you'd be interested, but I, you know, I'm a Sony writer. And if you like to write with me, you know, maybe we could write some. And, and I swear, I thought, well, this is very sweet. It's like, this is, this is sent to me directly, but country, you know, that, well, that's nice. That's sweet and everything. Right. So I go into my dressing room and Keith, the guitar player, I said, Hey, do you know where Rascal Flats is? And he goes, well, if it's what I'm thinking of, they're really starting to tear it up, man. He goes, they got a video out where the guitar player shows his bum and it's really turning the country <laughs> world <laughs> upside down. I go, Oh yeah. So let's put CMT on and see if maybe we can see his his butt before we hit the stage. (laughs) So we put CMT on and there's a lot of stuff playing that I'm kind of going, yeah, okay. And then a teaser comes on. Stay tuned at the top of the hour. Rascal Flats melt at the beach in Daytona. And I see this production and I see this modern looking little bunch of spiky haired dudes. I go, whoa. So I go, okay. So, So the hour hits uh eight whatever we were going to go on we we're going on at 805 so boom this you watch intro, a video it just, well their 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 live special started oh and so i hear like the drums because it was like praying for daylight i think that they started with and mm-hmm. i saw this and i flipped out going this is different man and i'd heard yeah. that they were doing some different things i said so i did my show or no, I called Jay. I said, buddy, what's going on, man? <laughs> They're already on stage. I'm going, buddy, what's happening, man? I said, uh, you know, got your stuff, blah, blah, blah. I got off stage and the lady comes up to me and said, Jay called me and he's, he's Flip beside himself yeah. that you called him. She said, that was really great. I said, oh, awesome. So I called again after the show and they, he wasn't, I left a voice message and said, man, cause I put melt on and, and heard these days. I just go, buddy, mm. what you're doing is so unbelievable of the fusion of these styles. Yeah. Um, I just can't begin to tell you how much I love this and your voice is incredible. So I talked to him the next day. And he goes, well, the funny thing is, that's my cousin. <laughs> that's not me. I said, well, okay. I thought that was you. But he came out to L.A. We we were inseparable from that Damn. night on, uh, calling each other. Yeah, I'm on my way to meet and greet, blah, blah, blah. He says, we're coming out to do one of the TV shows. Let's get together. And so they came out, and Joe Don and Jay and I took them out to Riviera Country Club, and we played golf. And I made a trip to come to Nashville right after that, wrote with Brett James. And Jay, and as I've told you before, it reminded me of joining Chicago. Chicago had not recorded in years any new material. Yeah. I thought it was just it's over for us. You know, I'm in the 11th inning of my career and seeing those guys and Jay saying, you're the guy. You're part of what made me do what I want to do hmm. specifically. Yeah. He goes, when Chicago broke up, I thought, there goes my band. Yeah. And he said, and when Will You Still Love Me came on. MTV, he said, I ran into the next room to my mother and said, Mom, they found the guy. Dang. It's gonna it's gonna continue. So Bart, thinking of this, just the, the improbability yeah. of all this 
it's just ridiculous, man. So, so you started coming to Nashville, started writing, and then like, had you just, and I don't even know how to, how to phrase this, but how did, I mean, besides just talking to your wife and praying a lot, how did you come to the realization that, that Chicago had for you run its course? I mean, musically, had you just decided, I have other stuff to say, I got to try other, you know, I got to sow some different oats here or, or what? I mean, I don't even well, know how to ask that question. It had never run its course. This was the thing that was beautiful about it. It was all happening at the same time because what would what have, what would eventually happen is that first trip out there. I also connected with Dennis McCoskey, who I co-wrote "Heart of Mine" with. Yeah. He's a big Nashville writer and yeah. publisher, right? As you know, and we, he introduced me to Greg Barnhill and Jason Sellers, and Barnhill and I really caught fire. You yeah, know, loved him and still do. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting in Dennis's kitchen, just like we were back when this all started for me, when Ronnie Vance called him. A lot started from Dennis, when you think about it. And mm-hmm. I said, Dennis, I feel it, man. Some, this is a feeling I've missed for a long time. My career isn't over. It's like the next phase of it. I said, you know, I love this feeling. And he goes, well, Jason, you're a great writer when you get off your ass, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, if I were you, I would start coming here like every three months and do this. And who knows, by the time yeah. at the end of a year, you may have a little catalog and you can go talk to a publisher. And I, I, I thought, I said to him, I gave him lip service. I said, yeah, I should. And I will thinking I'll never do that. You know? right. It's like, I'm, I'm too busy. Buddy, I got back home and it was under my skin. And I came back three months later. And that's when Greg and I really wrote a ton of stuff. And I came back three months later. I came back three months later. And suddenly, for the first time in my life, I don't know if it was that year, but I know at the end of two years, I'd written close to a hundred songs. I'd never Man. done that before. Yeah. Never done. And, the, and a lot of more quality. They were, they were really, you know, not just like cranking stuff out. I was really focused, bringing ideas, you know, pretty formed to, uh, to Greg and, and all that. And man, I, um, I, I just caught the fever. And, and I just knew that the seed was planted that we would eventually move to Nashville, you know, and some of the other guys in the band were moving to Nashville, trombone player, guitar player, Champlin moved here. So it was all, it was all to be, you know, uh, coexisting. There was no, yeah. So eventually, say three, three, four years later, the opportunity to record an album comes up. You know, a couple of the original members had had really started. Lamb always wanted to record. Yeah, he always wanted to to be you know expressive, expressive, and the band was you know was you know so good that we wanted to document it. Yeah, always. But but the whole idea of well, there's no opportunities, and why, we don't want to tarnish the legacy. This and that. Well, based on those songs that I wrote. Suddenly, 
the management sat down with me and said, if, you know, if we can get your guys, Rascal Flats, involved in this, then it really gets legitimate. So I said, well, I got an idea. Why don't I bring my buddy Jay in to produce? Because we were going to like produce, like each bring in two songs mm-hmm. and produce ourselves. And I said, I'm not interested in producing this band. It's yeah. we're too close. Let me get my buddy who's in Rascal Flats. And then management just pushed it through that he's going to produce the whole record. Yeah. So they really, you know, brought that to fruition. And suddenly there's Howard Kaufman and Irving Azoff, you know, getting involved again through that relationship. Yeah. So it really, it really pulled it all together, and uh, it was fantastic. You mentioned early, thirty. You mentioned earlier about uh, the thing. One of the difference between L.A. writing and Nashville writing, he goes, "Dude, you guys finish. Like, yep. You guys get stuff done." But I think that a lot of that comes from, like, when I was really writing a lot, I'd be booked out sometimes three, four, five months at a time. So if you and I had Friday to write, we had to get a song done on Friday because I couldn't, mm. we wouldn't see each other again for three right. or four months. So I assume when you started coming out here three months for a week, then three months for a week, then three months for, I, I assume you got into that mentality and it's like, we're not leaving till we're done. You know, it's 10 o'clock. Okay. Let's get a pizza in here you know, and let's finish this sucker. And so, like you said, you ended up, with a hundred songs after two years. Cause you, that's you exactly what happened. Has that but changed? Has that, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Has that change in your own mentality stayed with you? I mean, do you, do you just, you're a, I mean, I, I think you're a grinder. I told my wife, I go, dude, that guy's relentless, man. I mean, and it's awesome. It's like, if we're going to do this, let's get it done. I mean, so I assume you're sticking with that mentality. Well, I absolutely am. And I learned you know, basically the first day I sat down with Jay and Brett, which was the first writing I did in Nashville. First of all, he brings this guy who was BMI writer of the year. I had no idea. He's just a young guy, 10 years younger than me, who's kind of like, you know, bright eyed. And I'm going, wow, okay, this guy's a Chicago fan. And I brought an idea to the table called Long Lost Friend. Mm. And, and they loved it. And we, we hammered out. Usually I've been a, I've been a, chords and melody guy right been really diving more into words in the last several years a lot of journaling a lot of blogging and people have always told me your writing is incredible yeah you know you really hit the feelings so now i've really made the the move to like start start really transitioning that into short form song and i love the idea of where emotional points hit and they have the right words you know because writing with the greats that's what happens so so i um um, my brain froze. What was the question again? No, your mentality of, of getting songs oh, yeah. done. So we so we finished that first tune. Oh, we finished all the changes in the melody, and, and typically what would happen is, awesome, let's go get something to eat or something like that. Right. And all of a sudden, you got heart of mine that sits around for a year and a half, right? <laughs> Jeff, or... Um, uh, Brett's sitting there. He's got his computer up and he's writing lyrics out. Yeah. And then boom, it was done. And I went, wow. <laughs> I love that. Cause as you know, now I love to work fast, man. Yeah. I want to work fast. I want to record fast. 
Um, so I, that's, that's really where, you know, I, I worked with Tom Rundgren a year ago on a great, uh, tri- uh, Beatles tribute tour. And he, that's him. This guy is just his, as far as r- making records and stuff. And so when I'm writing, when I can start hearing it coming back at you, it just yeah. says so much. It tells you so much. Right. So that's, so we finished that and we went into a second one finished two songs that were very strong in one sitting. And I went, that's where I want to be. Yeah. That's where I want to be. This whole LA thing and being in a band, which was really methodical and a lot of thinking and a lot of taking time, which is great has its place, but, but I really want to be in involved in, in uh, circles and environments that want to work fast. And by the way, I'm sorry to go on a little bit of a tangent, but I bought a, I bought a songwriting course of Ryan Tedder. Uh, oh yeah, it, yeah. Uh, one Republic or Big Repu- or one Republic, whatever, One yeah. Direction or there's yeah. One Republic. And again, yeah. And again, man, the tidbit that I got was that as he was writing, he was putting the vocals down to here and said, "That's how I want to work." Yeah. Because I got the rig here. Yeah. It's like you know, it's all set up and going. Let's just test it. Let's just try it. So taking the whole, let's finish. And that the tools are here, ready to go. Absolutely, Bart. I learned it from you guys. And, and and it has nothing to do with really being in like a, I don't have a publishing deal. I don't have anything specifically to write for. I'm not targeting. But just this COVID thing and finally having the first time in my life to really just have all this breathing room. We've talked about this before, you and me, that yeah. the songwriting always felt like this is the easiest way to put it no matter how bad and dark life would get, you sit down and start creating something and the universe expands. Dude. That's God. Right. Absolutely. So, so right there is like, it's, it's, it is the connection. Yep. And I went, you got to do this more. Yeah. So for nothing, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? For nothing more than that. I mean, I'm, I, I'm studying a lot of stuff of like, you know, people like Bach, specifically wrote for the church right Mm. right so so i'm kind of i'm really really looking at and and as we talked before that coming out of this pandemic the next renaissance i believe are people who are going to be needing our feelings so badly that's our purpose and our songs will be amplifying their feelings Yes. They're going to be going like, dude, that's exactly what I was thinking. I did, but I don't, yep. I'm, but I'm, I'm not a writer. So I didn't know how to put that down. I, dude, there's going to be so much emotional release when, cause everybody in their mom has been writing and recording and making records. There's going to be so much great music to come out of this thing, man. I mean, let's, let's, let's try to find a bright side. And I think that's a bright side. And let's put it this way, you know, our buddy Jeff was talking about doing a, a little small uh, socially distanced show recently. And, and the couple that I've done with, you know, my band with Jay, The Rise Above. And we're just playing basically covers because there are songs, right? There are hits, but people are so star and you can just see what it does yeah. for them. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole beautiful thing about music is that even without a word, you know, I've I've always tried to break it down. Like when you hear like a beautiful synth warm pad sound that has whatever effects that make one note, a droney note, 
it just puts you somewhere, right? What is that? Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's bringing whatever it is, a feeling of hope. And it, so what was the original of that? The wind going through the, the trees and the, right? So it's like these, these sounds, that's medicine, man. And yeah. I know I need it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so again, we've talked earlier that, you know, I joined a band, one of the most iconic bands in the world as a, you know, as a front man of it at a really young age. So it was all about, you got to focus on you. It's all about you and to make sure that you're this so that, and I, I saw along the way the effects it was having and helping people and everything, but it was still about, okay, you're in, you're in a band that has a, has, has, a, has, has an agenda of, of, of a business. Yeah. And keeping the business going. Yes. All the while, I have to say that the guys in Chicago have always been really aware and grateful and cognizant of the fact of what that music has done for people. Yeah. The, the, the spiritual side of it, you know, and nobody was really ever taking themselves. That was beautiful. I just did as the Romans, do, you know, when you're in Rome, do what the Romans do. They weren't taking themselves, you know, like, a, Hey, I'm a star and serious. But at this point now it's, and if the fact that records don't really sell, like they did the whole reason to be doing this, the intentions have completely shifted. And I, I embrace that. I well, love you, know, it. you know, the rise above you and Jay and Dean, I mean, I watched on YouTube. There's a whole, the Ron, uh, right. Ron white, Ron white, the number, number one, or yeah. Number one tequila thing. Mm-hmm. And you watch that and you talk about, you had to learn to be a front man. Well, in that band, there, it just in you three, there's three frontmen right there. I, mean, right. I, don't, I don't know that anybody knows that Dean can sing like that. I remember him singing in Journey, singing uh, Mother, Father, and I'm like, holy right. crap. And especially right. back then, he looked like a freaking caveman. I know. But, but you get such, you get enough of a break time wise that you can, you can be frontman, you can be sideman, you can be totally. anything you want. And so can everybody else. It's like, that just has to be so much fun. Also, writing. You can write for each other, you know, dude, I it's, got this thing and it would be perfect for you, you know. It's the best, man. I, I work with a company out in Nashville called Prime Source and Six Wire is the house band. Oh, of it. yeah. It's Andy Kerr. And it's the coolest thing because they'll book these these gigs, these corporate gigs. Sometimes they're public. And they'll bring two or three singers in. John Elefante, Elefante and oh, I yeah. and, uh, you know, uh, uh Steve Augeri, speaking of journey oh, and Richard Page has done them and, and uh, Mark McGrath. And it's the coolest thing. Cause at this point in our lives, you know, Michael McDonald, we all talk about it. It's so great to be involved in things. Todd Rundgren last year, you know, I, mm. I know that the fact you don't have to have to carry the whole night sometimes is really a great thing. Yeah. You know, it's a great break. It's nice to have that. You know, because as the rise above gets out and works, you know, I'm, I've got my, I've got solo. Listen, I call myself the reluctant, <laughs> you know, the reluctant rock star. But you know, all of a sudden, I started, you know, booking some solo dates, and they started kind of taking off. So whatever the rise above isn't going to be doing, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, some people are asking me to come out and do some things on my own. So man, I'll tell you I one know. of the one of the things that I, I 
love listening to you is as much as you've achieved and as long as your career already is, you can tell you're still just such a fan. And oh, I mean, yeah. just even the way you talk about just Todd Rundgren and just himself, it's like, you're still just such a fan. There's not a jaded bone in your body, man. That's really, that's amazing. That's wonderful. I, I agree with you, man. I, I don't feel jaded. You know, I did a cruise. One of the last things that any of us did at the end of, or at the beginning of 2020. And it was so funny, man. It's one of my first shows, like of just me, you know, going mm-hmm. out and, and Peter Cetera had funny enough, man, Peter Cetera had, had kind of gone home to relax for a while. So it looked like he wasn't going to be touring for a while. So Bo Cooper, who was Rascal Flatts musical director. And when I first met them in 2003, he's Cetera's musical director, Foster's right-hand man. So I called him and I basically took that band. I took Peter's band and did this and it's, you know, Brewster and, and, uh, Chris Rodriguez and oh, I yeah. Yankton, who's in Rise Above with us. Yeah. We went and did this cruise and it was so much fun. And Rundgren was on the cruise. One of the coolest things, when I talked to people, like, you know, I was writing with Tom Hambridge lately and told him, you know, Rundgren, he's freaking out. Like, yeah. Look at these big time writers. Like, Rundgren. I go, you know, yeah, it's funny. He's my friend now. I'm, I'm playing my show. This was an incredible moment. I'm playing my show on this cruise. And the next thing I know, I turn and look, and in the seats for the artists that want to come and look at other people's shows, there's Todd and his wife, Michelle, and his son. They wanted to be at my show. That's awesome. That meant so much to me, man. Yeah. And I told his son later, I said, man, I, I, I kind of wanted him to come up and play. And he goes, you should ask him. Then I realized, <laughs> of course he wants to come up and play. Because we did 25 or 6 to 4 out on it. We did a Beatles tour, which we're going to do some more stuff. A Beatles tour doing the White Album. It was Mickey Dolenz of the Monkees, Monkeys Todd, me, um, and uh, Christopher Cross, and and uh, Joey Mullen, the last surviving member of Badfinger, the guitar player. Oh, wow. So we'd do these Beatles tunes, and it was pretty much a straight boomer audience, right? Yeah. And they kind of knew a little bit who I was really sort of like the guy that was kind of, you know, like on the cusp. And then we do two of our own hits and I, you know, I was, de- I was debating whether to do, will you still love me, which is the most recognizable that I yeah. sang, but it's kind of a tough song to like have a band, you know, really pick up easily. Plus hard to say, I'm sorry, um, is, is such a massive song and will cross, you know, demographics too. So I said, let's do hard to say, I'm sorry. And 25 or 64. So hard to say, I'm sorry we do. And all of a sudden they go, Oh, Okay. 25 or 64, buddy. Boom! Brings the house. And there's Rundgren wanting to play. There's there's great videos of it out there. It's like incredible. And it's a kind of a fun little guitar part, too. Big time. Just a little bit. Big time. Well, so I know you and, and obviously, like, Jay was getting ready to start a farewell tour for the Flats. Yeah. And and Dean was in the Dead Daisies. I think he's not anymore. I think he's concentrating on you guys. Yep. So I know there's managers and booking agents and everything else. So what are you guys hearing as far as dates being able to get back out there? We got our first date booked. Nice. Oh, yeah. I just heard uh, yesterday uh, that there's a date booked in November. Cool. Um, and what I heard from our manager is that 
things are going well with the, with the vaccine. And so they're thinking if it keeps really going in the direction, they said there's talk of maybe even some stuff in May, maybe coming up. Now I think that's probably on the smaller scale. Anybody who's out there wants to to fill 25,000 seaters, although it is what it is. If people are herd immunity, I mean, what's the difference, but I think people who are going to be, really kind of pushing the envelope of like, well, I think it's safe, but let's really do it on a small scale. Um, you know, maybe May, June, but I've been told, I actually called our manager and said, should I be thinking 2022? Mm-hmm. I mean, to just really be prepared. And he goes, it's not a bad thing to think. He goes, but I, I really don't think we're gonna have to wait that long. He goes, you know, there's Beatles dates that are being talked about in the fall. Uh, we're going to do, um, if I'm available, I mean, what I've heard is that there's a bunch of offers starting to come in for Rise Above. And and as he said, he goes, and this is, nobody's even seen it yet. And the stuff, it's funny, the stuff you saw on YouTube, that's with hardly any rehearsal, man. It's a bit all over the place, but the potential is, you can yeah. totally see what the potential is. Yeah. Let us get out there with a week of getting reps in for a week. And it's Good. just going to be incredible with real focused rehearsals. But I think late summer, hopefully, yeah. man, is being kind of – is that what you're hearing and thinking? That and uh, 2022 for the bigger venues. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, – you know what? There's also a, a really good rock and roll buddy of mine said, we can take our show into the Ryman Auditorium. We can take our show into a, into a club. You know, like these Motley Crue, Poison, Def Leppard stadium things, they go, they can't take that show into a club. So those things are probably going to get pushed back to 2022. Sideline, yeah. But he goes, you know, if we can fit into a smaller place and if people can, you know, have a laminated card to prove they got the vaccine and if everybody's cool about it, maybe so. It's almost like, the longer people are forced to be sidelined, it's almost like like all the all the musicians we know, including ourselves, right? You you don't really get out and perform live much anymore, do you? Okay, but anybody who's doing that is almost like itching so bad. It's like I don't care where it is, man. Yeah. So I want to play somewhere, um, and. And then the people who need it that bad, it's going to be interesting to see the very first things that are just starting to kind of like, it's almost like little blossoms that are starting to, you know, to, to uh, let the next thing happen. Yeah. But it's well, as, uh, as much as anybody wants, wants to play the, the right and the desire to see that and be a part of that is, is as big too, man. People are just dying to see live music. Well, that's one of the things I loved about that Beatles thing was I really wanted to go get a lay of the land because that whole thing was was uh, was geared toward. And I I talked to the guys in our band about this, the Rise of Bow. I go, here's mm-hmm. the sweet spot. The sweet spot are these six hundred to two thousand seat venues, man. Mm-hmm. And I'm hearing literally when you're selling six hundred seats. That's a decent night. I was like, yeah. wow, that's coming from 
we sold 5,000, we sold, you know, 7,500, you know, but as you've said, that takes so much to make that happen. Yeah. You know, that just, just put setting your sights to something that's reasonable that way, as you said, for the purpose of being able to just get out there and let people, it's a two way thing. We're all able to uh, play, <laughs> perform, celebrate, but the people are needing it. So, and if, dude, if, even if it's a 250 seat, I did a, I did a, I did a thing, uh, a venue down in Florida. It was for Valentine's day. And it was just me. I took my son, Connor, who played some hand drums and he played a little uh, bass and keys on stuff, but it was pretty much just me playing piano and singing. And that place seats like 250 to 300. And I loved it, man. Yeah. And you'd be amazed to see who the artists playing these places. Oh, I bet. It's a new world out there, man. Well, and also production-wise, you can always get bigger, but once you get the flying airplanes and the people on the trapeze and stuff, it's hard to send those back home and, you know, go into a club setting. Let me tell you this. (laughs) The the Beatles tour we did, this was the perfect uh, example of this. They were using house lighting, Hmm. house... uh, audio so that it was a lean and mean thing yeah and the guy the the lighting guy was really doing some pretty neat things with whatever he had he was just a screen but he'd figure out ways to like make things look like flowers and stuff but when you see the the you see the photos there's todd rundgren and there's mickey dolan's you don't need anything but that yeah that is the attraction it's like you see mickey dolan sitting there almost like you know, like vaudeville singing uh, Rocky Raccoon and Todd Rundgren in a, in a, in a, uh, a, um, what was that material? Linen, white linen outfit with a bunch of flowers singing sexy Sadie. And you don't need anything other than that. Yeah, man. Or bungalow bill. He had a, he had a super soaker would come out with, Hey, bungalow bill starts shooting the audience. You don't need, you need that. You need the, yeah. the personalities. Dude, thank you so much, man. This has been so much fun. I feel like I've taken, taken your whole afternoon, man. No, I don't mind. You know me enough now. Well, I really appreciate okay. it. Well, hey. I love what you're doing, man, with your podcast. And obviously, thank you. Uh, you're an incredible writer. It's great to connect yeah. on that level. And thank you. It means a lot. And a soulful man. (laughs) Very soulful man. Well, that's what's important. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm going to say goodbye, and then I want to stick around and and really say goodbye. So thank you, Jason Sheff. Thank you, brother. Got it, man. Pleasure to be here. Bye. Bye.